Well, good morning. Uh, before I begin today, I wanted to make an announcement. Several months ago, we uh, decided to do away with our Sunday evening service because we wanted to provide opportunities for us to do something else on Sunday evenings. And one of those opportunities is going to be coming up beginning October 20th. I'd like to begin on October 20th a um, series in the book of Revelation. So some of you have probably wondered, what's the book about? Uh, some of you maybe have been afraid of a study in the book of Revelation. Uh, it's gonna be a nine-week study, although we're not gonna cover the whole book in the nine weeks. I anticipate doing nine weeks this fall, nine weeks in the spring, and uh, we'll see if it spills, spills over into the fall as well. We're gonna ask you to register for this, uh, and so we'll have a link online coming up but I wanted to make this available or known to you now that it, um, it's gonna be from 5 to 6.30, so it's an hour and a half study beginning October 20th. So you may wanna start reading Revelation now. Um, several years ago, I came to the realization that I wasn't very good at saying no. Uh, people would ask me to do something or help out with something or people would ask me to attend some event and and I, I really didn't want to, or I, I really didn't have the time to do it, but instead of saying no, I said yes. Uh, sometimes it's because I didn't want to offend or hurt the other person. Uh, some, sometimes I, I would, felt selfish about not wanting to do this thing, and so I said yes, even though I would rather say no or whatever. But I used to do that, and the problem with that is that it's really not the most honest answer. I found that I would go to certain events or do certain things, but the whole time I was there, I was thinking, why did I agree to do this? I wish I'd said no, but I had said yes, and now I was committed. This changed, though, many years ago for me when I read a book. I think it was Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He talked about the fact that it is easier to say no to something when you have a greater yes. When there's something else that is, is really kind of, you, you need to be doing, it's just a lot easier to say no. For example, if you invite me to a party on a, a Thursday night and I have nothing going that night, it's a little bit hard to say no, but if it's my anniversary, I have a greater yes. And, and both you and I would understand, well, yeah, you need, that needs to be the thing you're doing. And even if the other person doesn't know what it is I need to be doing, oftentimes I've found if I have something that's really pressing on me, I need to say, I need to say no to this new opportunity so that I could say yes to what I need to be doing. Now this morning, we're not going to be talking about time management. I wanna talk about the subject of temptation, the subject of giving in to sin. And there's a principle at work here based on this introduction here that I think that our ability to say no to certain things in our lives, certain sins, certain temptation is related to the fact that we don't have a greater yes. We don't have something that we're saying yes to that makes it so that it's easier for us to say no to this temptation or no to this particular sin. You see, I don't think it's enough to, to suggest that you just not give in to temptation. I don't think it helps anyone to say, stop sinning. Stop doing this thing, stop doing that thing. It just doesn't help. There's no power even in that command. I view it as like a speed limit sign that says 55, but it has no power to enforce it. But if there's a good reason why, if there's some incentive, some reason to say no to sin, then I'll be more inclined to say no. 
Today we're going to be looking primarily in the book of Hebrews, but I think that there are some great yeses out there, things that, that we could give ourselves to instead of this sin. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, the apostle Paul said, no temptation has overtaken us except what is common to humanity. God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you'll be able to bear it. All of us are tempted in the same ways. Now, one of you can look at someone else who's fallen in some particular sin and say, well, I would never do that. We're all tempted in the same ways. But this is a promise here that God says, I'll find a, a greater yes for you, though. When you're tempted, there's a greater yes out there another opportunity, some other thing. Now, what are some of the greater yeses? Well, the writer of Hebrews gives us several of them in Hebrews 12. The first one, I would suggest that it's easier to say no to temptation and sin if we're willing to say yes to the team we're on. Yes to the team we're on. Part of our motivation for doing certain things has to do with the fact that we're part of something bigger. We're not alone in this. I have not been real involved with sports throughout my life. Uh, my father actually discouraged my three brothers and me because sports had become like he called it an idol in his life. He was an amateur boxer, my dad was, became a minister. Now he boxes from the pulpit, you know. But he didn't want the rest of us, you know, loving sports too much, so we didn't do a lot of sports, but I did just enough to understand how the thing works. And so when I was in high school, I was on the gymnastic team in college, I, I wrestled. And then when I was in high school, I was also on a church basketball league. And when I was in college, I was on an intramural volleyball team. And so I know just enough about sports. And most sports have an individual component, but they also have a group component, a team component. And so for example, when I wrestled, when my weight class was called, I believe it was 119 in college, that's, yes, I was very skinny. When my weight class was called, I went out on the mat and, and it was just me and the other person. It's very much, you'd say, an individual sport, but it, it wasn't just an individual sport. I was part of a team and all of them were standing around and all of them were cheering me on and my victories were their victories. And so were my defeats. And the writer of Hebrews talks about this as a motivation, I think, for saying no to sin. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight in the sin that so easily ensnares. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. He describes this scene where there's a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. The word that's used for cloud in this verse in the original language in which the Bible is written, it's not a reference to a little cloud, like you point to a little cloud in the sky. No, it's a reference to a massive cloud, a cloudy, to be in the midst of a cloud. The image that comes to my mind is that oftentimes here in Morgantown, from my porch, I can see about nine miles away, and I will see on a foggy day that the clouds have actually sunk down into the valleys. You know what I'm talking about. And I'll see it from my home, but it's clear where I am, but then I will drive down into the city, and at a certain point, I'll see it coming, and I'll find myself surrounded completely by the cloud. It's kind of just an unusual 
experience. Like it's a little surreal. It was clear a minute ago, now I'm completely surrounded. The writer of Hebrews is describing this scene where we're surrounded and it's a scene, scene where you're in a, like a, a coliseum of sorts and you're running a race. And it's like they're watching this race. A scholar by the name of Dr. Vincent explains it this way. The writer's picture is that of an arena in which the Christians whom he addresses are contending in a race while the vast host of the heroes of faith who, having borne witness to the truth, have entered into their heavenly rest, watches the contest from the encircling tiers of the arena, compassing and overhanging it like a cloud filled with lively interest and sympathy. That's the scene that's being painted here. Now, most scholars, and I'll put myself in this category, not in the scholar category, but I put myself in the category of scholars that believe this, that it's not describing a reality like there's some kind of heavenly arena up there or coliseum up there and that they're actually physically watching us. I don't believe people are physically watching us from heaven. I know some of you might think otherwise, but it would kind of require you to be omnipresent or omniscient to be able to do that. I don't think he's describing a reality that they're all sitting around watching what's going on on the earth in terms of your life or this person over here or anything like that, but it's still a, a wonderful picture He's describing a scene of these people in an arena that are watching you, and, and he's saying, you, you run this race. You run this race because we already ran it. You see, the thing that's interesting about the spectators in his analogy here is that they're not just spectators. These are people who ran themselves. These were people who got across the finish line. They were ones who succeeded ahead of you, and what the author is saying is it's now your turn. You now have a chance to carry on. Now, who are these heroes watching? Well, it's the people that are listed in Hebrews 11. The chapter right before it, it describes all of these heroes of the faith, people who by faith did amazing things, who overcame by faith, who defeated sin by faith, who went through difficult trials by faith. Those are the people that have gone before us, this, this cloud of witnesses, and now we're in, in the arena we're the ones who are running, and the motivation we have here is to care for the sake of the heritage, to realize you're part of something else, to care because you're part of the rest of the team. And so you say yes to the team. It allows you to say no to this thing in your life that might get in the way, that might be a problem. Saying no to sin is partly about saying yes to the team you're on, but it's something else. I think it's saying yes to winning, specifically winning the race. Let's look at verse one again. Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. He's reminding them again that they're part of a race. And why is he saying be careful about the things that are ensnaring you or holding you back or tripping you up? Why is he saying that? He's saying that because he's saying you want to win, don't you? I mean, that's the inference here. Don't you want to win the race? There are things that we give ourselves to that are not part of winning the race, that can be a problem in winning the race, things that trip us up, things that tend to stumble us. He says you identify those things, get rid of those things. The image that comes to my mind every time I read this 
is when I was growing up, um, we had to wear boots sometimes when we went out in the snow. I don't know what they're even called these days. I don't know if they make them anymore, but they, they were these like rubber boots that you pulled on over your shoes and everything. So they were kind of big, and they had these metal clasps. How many of you have worn those boots before? How many of you have no idea what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. Well, so they went the way of the dinosaur. But they kept your feet dry, you know? And, and so you'd slip these things on, but they were big and they were bulky. And when I read this, I don't know, for some reason my mind always goes to this because when I would be wearing those, they were just so clumsy. And I can't imagine running a race with these boots on, going you know, plopping along while everyone is running to win, and I got these boots that are slowing me down and holding me back. And the writer of Hebrews is suggesting there are things that are, are holding us back. The Apostle Paul goes a little bit further. He says that sometimes these things can kind of knock us out of the race even. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, he said, don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize, run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. However, they do it to receive a crown that will fade away, but we, a crown that will never fade away. Therefore, I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. The word there, disqualified, means unapproved. It actually means to kind of break the rules and then get to the end of the race and realize, oh, he broke the rules, it doesn't count. For the Christian, I think practically what this means is that I, I think that when we get in and we pass away at some point or when it comes to Judgment Day, we're gonna stand before Jesus and we're looking forward to him saying to us, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. But oftentimes, I think Christians are gonna to get to that place and they're not gonna hear that. In fact, the gospel writer John talks about the fact that at Jesus' appearance, some Christians will actually shrink away. I wasn't ready for that. And so Paul says, you need to watch those things in your life that are gonna get in the way, that are gonna be a problem because I don't wanna be spending my whole life preaching to others and then somehow be disqualified. Now, I need to mention real quickly about that, that if you've blown it in some area, I don't think you're disqualified. As long as you're alive, there are opportunities. Get back in the race, keep going, move in the right direction. But still, this should be kind of a motivation for us to say, I'm in it to win. I want to get to that place where I've, I've crossed that finish line and I hear from Jesus Christ those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And so when we say no to these various temptations, I think part of what we're doing is saying yes to winning. Now, by the way, temptation... Uh, you know, I think in our minds sometimes when we think of temptation, uh, I think we think in the, oftentimes the area of lust or the sexual area, but temptations can face us in all kinds of areas. You know, some are tempted to lie all the time. I think I had a friend that was, his, his particular struggle was he was tempted to steal, believe it or not. He would go to a store and he just felt like he just was tempted to, to shoplift. He didn't need what he was taking. It was just the idea of taking it, and he struggled with that. Even as an adult, he was tempted in that way. We're tempted in different ways. You might be tempted to beat somebody up, tempted to not forgive. We're tempted in lots of different ways. 
But Paul talks about the fact, discipline yourself, watch yourself, make sure that you have this mindset, I'm going to win this race. I don't want these other things to get in the way of winning the race. Now, when I was on the various sports, sometimes self-control was essential. For example, when I wrestled, the wrestlers had to what they called make weight. You, had, you, got, you got weighed, every wrestler got weighed before the match, usually earlier in the day. You got weighed before the match and you had to be under your weight or on your weight, you couldn't go beyond it. I was wrestling at 119. If I wrestled 120, I was out. Or sometimes you got bumped into the next weight class, you were then wrestling people that were heavier than you were, which puts you at a disadvantage. But there were occasions from this team that wrestlers didn't watch what they ate during the week. They were not careful. They weren't thinking in terms of, I've got a match on Saturday and I need to be careful here. I mean, most of the wrestlers would do everything they could before that weigh-in. They would go out, they'd, they'd sweat out as much water as they could. You know, they were watching what they were eating. You say, why should you deny yourself food? Well, because I need, to, I, need to, I need to win the match. I need to make weight. I can't be disqualified. And I think that there are things in our lives that are going to get in the way of winning. So we say yes to the team we're on because the things we do, I think, are part of something bigger. And we say yes to winning every time we say no to something else. Third, we say yes to Jesus, our example and helper. We're told in verse two, verses two and three to keep our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He is called here the source and perfecter. The word source there can be translated pioneer and perfecter is his, he's the helper. The example here of Jesus is someone who went the distance. If you were looking at all the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, they're, they're amazing, but when you get to Jesus, nobody did it like he did. He's the one we look to that went the distance against sin. He went to the very end. He never compromised to the end. And how glad I am he didn't compromise. You realize that if Jesus had sinned even once, he would be disqualified from being your savior? This is why before he was even tempted, or before he was, began his ministry, he was tempted by the devil, right before the start of it. If the devil could knock him out at that point, get him to sin, get him to trust in himself or do the wrong thing, then he could not be our savior anymore. He'd be in the same boat as the rest of us. But Jesus went the distance. And he's willing to do that for us. And I think we need to realize that it matters that we go this distance and we've got someone who's our hero that can help us along the way, someone who paved the way for us, someone we can look to. And in a sense, what we're saying yes to when we say no to sin is Jesus. Now, there have been times that I've been tempted in various areas and I've said yes to the temptation. There have been times I've given in to the sin, but there have been other times where I was tempted in similar ways, and my mindset was this, 
I wanna do this thing. I wanna sit in this way. Maybe no one will ever even know about it, but I'm gonna say yes to you, Jesus, and no to this thing over here. It became for me a prayer. I'd say, Lord, you know that I want this thing, but I want you more. I love you more than I love this area here. And by saying yes to Jesus, suddenly I think his power becomes available for us to say no to the sin. It's the greater yes. And so saying no to sin many times means saying yes to something else, the team. It says yes to the winning. It says yes to Jesus, who was our example and also can help us. Fourth, saying no means saying yes to joy. What if before we gave in to particular sin areas, we could see the other side? I think uh, sin, I'd call sin a liar, a deceiver. In fact, it's called that in the Bible. It's, it's called the deceitfulness of sin. Sin lies to us in certain ways. For example, sin promises us that it'll give life. But it doesn't. It, it gives us death instead. All sin does this. You know, Paul said the wages of sin is death, the penalty of sin is death. I'm convinced every sin we commit, whether anyone even sees it or not, has a death impact on us. I don't mean that we physically die, but, but even if someone doesn't see it, like for example, you're tempted to cheat and you go ahead and cheat and no one sees that you cheated. You destroyed your character just a little bit. You said yes to this thing, the wages of sin. There's always a penalty. Adam and Eve were told, if you eat from this fruit, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. That's what they were looking at. That was the promise that was made concerning this disobedience or this sin. And they ate, and their eyes were indeed open, but then they saw the rest of it. And they discovered that it wasn't worth it. Sin promises life, it gives us death, but I want to suggest also that sin promises joy or happiness, and it takes away our joy and our happiness. If we could just see the other side of it, let me ask you, think for a moment of whatever struggle you have or temptation you have, do you ever feel better at the other side of it? When you give in, are you say, well, I'm really, really glad I did that. Now, I'm not suggesting here today that temptation or sin, the sin we give ourselves to is not pleasurable sometimes. It is. You know, the, the things that we give ourselves to can be really enjoyable, really pleasurable. It does do that, but it comes at a cost. It's kind of like uh, we, we're really, really thirsty maybe, and we think if I drink this salt water, it'll quench my thirst. That's, that's what sin is like. That's what temptation is like. Oh, you're, you're in a boat, you're in the ocean, and you're so thirsty, and you look, and you're surrounded by water, but it's salt water. You say, boy, if I only could drink that water. And maybe it would feel good going down, but you know it would, it would, it would be a mess. It'd end up killing you on the inside, or it's kind of like eating the candy, and you say, oh, I just want this candy, like a big pile of candy, but then it sours your stomach afterwards. That is really what sin does. But there's a joy that comes. Looking beyond it and saying no to it. Hebrews 12, 2, it says we again should be keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured the cross. He looked past the cross, past his temptation to throw in the towel, past his temptation to run away like the disciples did, 
He went the distance because he was looking on the other side of it and he said, there's gonna be a joy one day when all these people for whom I'm gonna lay down my life will be able to enter the presence of my Father forever and ever because of what I'm about to do. And he focused on the joy that was set before him. He said, I know this is gonna be a hard road here. Going through this is not gonna be easy, but I'm not looking at this, I'm looking beyond it for the joy set before me endured this thing. But there's a joy that comes when we choose the right path. The psalmist put it this way in Psalm 45 and verse 70, talking about Jesus, I believe. He said, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy more than your companions. I think the oil here is an anointing oil, and in biblical times, anointing oil smelled so good. It was just a fragrant oil, and it was poured over the head of the priests. And everything around began to smell the, the wonderful smell of this anointing oil that would stay in his clothes for good. And we're told there that Jesus chose righteousness and he said no to this thing. And therefore, he was anointed with this oil of joy above other people. There's somehow a joy that comes from knowing I'm not doing this. I'm choosing this thing over here. I think Jesus talked about it in some other ways. For example, he said the pure in heart will see God. Pure in heart means ones who don't, aren't divided in their affections. Love for God, pure in heart will actually see God. He went on to say that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they'll be satisfied. Those are the ones that'll experience that joy. That, that's where the real promise is. It's not in the, the sin that promises joy. No, it's in this righteousness, choosing the right path. The final thing I'd like us to say yes to that I think will help us to say no to sin and temptation is to growing stronger. We're saying yes to growing stronger. Have you ever wondered why it is that God allows you to be tempted? Why doesn't he just take it away? I've known some people, by the way, that, that had some major areas in their life. Maybe they were a drug addict or, or an alcoholic or whatever. And when they found Jesus, it was completely removed. The desire for the drugs, the desire for the alcohol was completely removed in those cases. I've also known in most cases that's not the case. In most cases, when we put our faith in Christ, all the temptations aren't removed. It'd be so much easier if they were, right? Lord, just take it away. Why do I have to struggle with this thing? Bottom line is it's good, good for our growth. We need, we need to have things to say no to. We need, we need to be challenged in our conviction. We need to have opportunities to choose the right path because those are the things that I think make us stronger. We need opportunities for discipline, to discipline ourselves. And if we don't do that, sometimes God will. In Hebrews 12, four through seven, the writer of Hebrews said, and you're struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Let me just stop for a moment, but that's just a true statement. We might say, this is really hard. Right, if Hebrews is saying, you don't know what hard is, <laughs> do what Jesus did. He said no all the way to the end through the shedding of his own blood. And you're struggling, you haven't resisted at that point yet. And then verse five, and you've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons or children. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or faint when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. 
Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. What son is there that a father does not discipline? Now, there's one phrase in here. I don't like the way it's translated in the Holmans. It says he punishes every son he receives. That's not a good translation. I don't think God punishes Christians ever. The word is chastises or, or puts them through a difficult thing. But it's not punishes. You say, what's the difference between punishment and discipline? Well, punishment has as its goal to pay you for what you did wrong, and that's it. There's no restorative nature to punishment. And so someone commits a crime, they're thrown in prison. We're not concerned that they necessarily get reformed. We'd like that to happen, but you don't throw them into prison to get reformed. That's, we punish people that commit crimes. That's what punishment is. But discipline is something different, and this is talking about discipline. Discipline is, is training. Literally, the idea of child training is what he's talking about here. God is working in our lives to, to, God us, to get us to grow stronger. You, you provide discipline so that a person gets stronger and stronger and stronger so we become like Christ. And I'm saying we need these tests, these trials, these temptations in order to grow stronger. We need opportunities to say no to something that's really compelling for us. And I think discipline does this. Now, I think oftentimes it starts with our own discipline. When I um, was on the gymnastic team, oftentimes we participated in things that seemed to have nothing to do with gymnastics. Our coach had us running stairs up and down. Remember the first time I did that, I could, could hardly walk the next day. <laughs> I just was so sore, like, oh, it was just horrible. And we lifted weights. What does that have to do with gymnastics? My main routine was the high bar. More than anything, I needed to be uh, limber, I suppose, or a lot of things like that. I, who needs to be strong? Well, you need to be strong. We did exercises. There was one called an inchworm. I don't know if you've ever done that before, but you kind of fall face down and then use your hands to climb back up to a V and then stand up and then fall and jump again. When we did that one, I was sore. I, could, I was walking around like a stiff muscle, one muscle. I could already lift my arms. Why? Because I need to be stronger to win the whole thing. I, 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 need to be, I don't need just to know my thing. I need to be stronger. You think for a moment what people go through to be on a football team or to be athletes in on a basketball team or whatever, it's, it's not just about learning to put the ball in the hoop. No, the coach puts them through all these things, but why on earth would anyone subject themselves to such things? I want to win. I want to be stronger. Temptation provides an opportunity for us to do that. But the writer of Hebrews reminds us that if we won't discipline ourselves, sometimes God will come in and help us a little bit train us a little bit so that we'll grow stronger, which is indeed the goal. But I would rather say yes to the discipline. So what should we do with this? Well, I want to encourage you, first of all, to evaluate what it is in your life you struggle with, and all of you have something. We all struggle with things. What is it for you that's the greatest temptation? And then I want to ask you, which of these five maybe could be a, a motivation for you that you could walk away and say, when I'm tempted in this area, I'm, I want to say yes to this thing because by saying yes to this, it'll be a lot easier to say no. Maybe yes to the team you're on and realize I'm part of something bigger. 
Maybe it's saying yes to winning. You say, you know, I'm going to say no to this thing because I, I, want, to, I want to win. I want to, I want to be someone who wins. Now, again, we're going to blow it sometimes. Don't use that as an excuse to stay down. You get back up. You get back going, you know. But yes to winning. Maybe it's yes to Jesus. I think he is our motivation and the one who's able to give us the power we need to overcome sin. Maybe it's just yes to joy. Stop believing the lie about sin that if I do this, this will be the best thing in the world. It is a destroyer. Maybe it's yes to just growing stronger. To start viewing trials in your life and temptations in your life through that lens. This is hard, but this is good for me. It's just good for me to go to the weight room. It's just good for me to, to suffer this. And I don't like it, but it's good for me. Now, next week, as was mentioned earlier, um, is our Baptism Sunday. We'll have 20 stories of life change. And I encourage you to come and hear those stories of the difference that Jesus is making in people's lives and bring people that need to hear those stories. But the week after that, I want to do kind of a, a second part to this story or this subject of trapped related to sin and temptation. This week is more on just the motivation. I just want to give us a, a yes motivation that'll cause us to say no. But in two weeks, there are a number of things that God has given to us, strategies that we have that we can employ when we're tempted or when we're facing difficult things that will help us gain the victory. So in two weeks, I'd like to pick it up from there in our trapped series. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the example of your son Jesus who died in our place and for our sin, who went the distance for us. He becomes a wonderful example for us, a model for us to follow. And thank you, Lord, that through Jesus and through the Spirit, when we walk and step with your Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Help us, O oh Lord, to see this for what it is and realize that we've been believing lies about sin and temptation. We believe them and we go down that path and only later discover it's not the way of life. It's not the way to win. It's not the way of joy. That you have something wonderful and better for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.